Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Joe Payne, founder, president, and CEO of Arturus Therapeutics. Great to have you on today, Joe. Hey, it's good to be with you, Rahul. Great. Joe, to kick us off and to provide some perspective for the rest of the conversation, would love to understand the arc of your career, how you got interested in biotech, and what got you to where you are today. The arc of my career. Well, I'm a scientist. Began my career in big pharma on the East Coast and it was easy to be, for me to become passionate in this area, became an expert in RNA sciences and RNA delivery through this early part of my career. Moved to the West Coast at a Merck site here in San Diego, and then transitioned to a Japanese company called Nitto. There was a biochemical division in Oceanside, California. I really enjoyed my early career and as a scientist, but in 2013, I was feeling entrepreneurial, myself and Pad Chivakula, who's our the co-founder of Arcturus. We quit our jobs and set up a small company here in San Diego. And fast forward 10 years, here we are talking to Rahul on a podcast about Arcturus. This is a messenger RNA medicines and vaccines company. It's publicly traded. And I look forward to talking to you today, Rahul. So Joe, walk us back, you know, 10 plus years ago and the founding story behind Arcturus. What was the impetus to start your own company and what were those early days like? 10 years ago was not a good time for RNA. Roche and Novartis and Merck had spent billions of dollars and were pulling out. There were sweeping statements and dogma and conclusions about RNA that nothing's going to work. That's all hype. And however, our personal experience was different. Myself and Pad Shivakula, the co-founder, we knew that this was an area of excitement, of potential, and I, we really believed in it. So we thought it was a good time to quit our jobs. We had expertise in not only the RNA molecules themselves and the design of these molecules, but in the safe and effective delivery of these beautiful, complex, large, negatively charged RNA molecules. So we wanted to leverage that experience and set up a new company and, and give it a shot. And talk to us about the first time you went out to get some funding what that was like, and you know, your perspective on raising capital over time. Well, you may have heard of these stories before, but the first $50,000 was way more difficult than the recent $50 million, You know, It's very challenging when you're first trying to set up a new company. I can empathize with all the young entrepreneurs out there. We ended up starting Arcturus with $15,000, and then we asked family and friends to contribute. And slowly but surely, that initial seed round hit that million-dollar mark, and I'll never forget that. But it was so difficult raising money. We thought it, we'd have more success approaching strategic partners and pharma partners, and that was indeed the case. And so I think we transitioned our focus on pharma partners and showing them some early data and in vitro and in mice, and that proved to be very fruitful, and we got some early licenses and deals in place early in the company's history with some great companies that helped us out early on. And so for the 
aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening right now, what's something that you would do differently if you were raising now and just your perspective around the dynamic of entrepreneurs and VCs? Well, yes. As a scientist, I didn't come from the business track or in a Wall Street track and everyone, it wasn't operations. It was pure science, right? Fundamentals or R&D. So I leveraged that strength, but I have to recognize some of the weaknesses at the time. I just didn't have that skill set. And so very early in the company's history, we thought we'd leverage our experience and license in some technologies. And we took verbal conversations as reality. We trusted people. We said, hey, will you guys give us a license? And they said, yes. And so we we operated based upon that. And what we quickly learned is that in the business world, people don't necessarily do what they say they're going to do. And so we learned very early in the company's history that you need a contract, you need something in writing, something signed and binding before you proceed to that next step. I think as an early entrepreneur, I would highly recommend people get something in writing before proceeding to the next step, because we definitely had some unique experiences early in the company's history there. So Joe, before we jump into the work that you're pursuing right now, I'd love to hear your thoughts around the evolution of messenger RNA over the last, let's say, 10 years or so, and the challenges that the modality has faced and how we've overcome some of those challenges. Great question. So messenger RNA is, first of all, I need to set the stage here a little bit. Messenger RNA is very different from small RNA molecules. People on this call may have heard of small interfering RNA or antisense oligotherapeutics, or these are tiny, tiny, small RNA molecules. Messenger RNA is massive, much, 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 much dramatically larger molecule. So there's unique challenges to packaging this molecule and delivering this molecule inside of a small animal or a human being. So there was significant challenges in making these large molecules, purifying them, and formulating them into nanoparticles early in the company's history that were very unique to just the large nature of the RNA. Much easier to do this with small RNA molecules. So I just want to highlight that. So first, you know, as you go through the last 10, 20 years, first was how do you make these molecules? Making them was fine. There's IVT, this in vitro process to making these molecules was worked out fairly early, but purifying these large molecules was a massive challenge. To give you an idea of what this was like, I'd say 10 years ago, it cost us more than a million dollars to make one gram of dirty messenger RNA. And that's just a very significant challenge early in the company's history. You don't share that with investors. That's not the first bullet point on the slide deck to investors, right? So there was early challenges on making and purifying the RNA molecule. There was also some misunderstandings to work through. When you inject this dirty RNA molecule into animals, there was some toxicology, some undesired inflammatory responses, undesired immune responses, just some tox that was observed. And people blamed the RNA molecule, and we did too. So everyone hyper-focused on modifying the RNA. We've got to modify this thing. We've got to throw more stuff onto it. But we realized that as we focused on the purification process, 
that the impurities were to blame primarily. Of course, there's challenges with mRNA itself, but the impurities were the impetus behind the toxicology. So once we discovered that and us in the field, that was a big step forward that we just need to improve the purification of these molecules. But having making and purifying mRNA was just the beginning to the real core set of problems, and that's on delivery. So how do you safely and effectively deliver this highly negatively charged molecule to the right cell in the human body? So to those that are unfamiliar with the chemistry of mRNA, I want you to look at your shoelaces, just unravel them. It's a very long, single-stranded molecule that's highly negatively charged. And if you push that together, the body doesn't like that. It wants to repel. It's all the same. So it's, imagine all these negatives coming together. It wants to repel from each other. So just wrap your head around that for a moment. What kind of buffers and solutions do you do to safely compress that molecule to a size that's reasonable to be wrapped up in a mixture of lipids? These are butter-like molecules, right? These greasy molecules to cover it into a tiny, tiny nanosphere and working through all of the learning curves with the entropy and thermodynamics and the challenges of keeping this particle just intact it wants to expand, right? And going through all the learning curves of that was just an extraordinary, very exciting for us. This was an area of expertise of ours. And we worked out and discovered a delivery technology called Lunar that was fantastic at maintaining the integrity of these particles so that they could be injected intravenously into not only mice, but primates. And we were one of the first companies to show proof of concept in these more advanced animal models. And that was really exciting to show that we could safely and effectively deliver these mRNA molecules to where they need to be in you know, larger animals. But I'll pause there, Rahul. Yeah. And since the time that you started working on Arcturus, I think there's a tremendous amount of interest in the space. I'm curious if you're seeing that increase in interest both from an investment thesis perspective, as well as from a talent perspective, or if one is lagging behind the other? Oh, no, I think in the last decade, we've definitely seen a considerable increase of interest in messenger RNA. There were some exciting new companies that have joined the space that were capturing attention with large rounds of financing and big deals. And, and then along came COVID and uh, mRNA did a fantastic job showing how that can be disruptive in the vaccine space. And there's several reasons behind that. But now going forward, people are wondering what else mRNA can do. And there's just a lot of exciting elements to the future of messenger RNA that Arcturus is participating in as well. And so now let's talk about you know the important work that you all are pursuing now and where you are from a development perspective and any partnerships and such. Oh, yeah. Late last year, we entered into a vaccine partnership with CSL. They're based in Australia, if you're not familiar with them, but they are one of the number one or number two flu shot companies in the world. So while many people are familiar the name of the company for their COVID shot, a lot of people don't know the name of the company of their flu shot for their annual flu vaccine. And so many on this call, I, I'm absolutely certain we're injected with a CSL flu vaccine. And we have partnered with CSL, one of the most prolific vaccine companies in the world, to help us commercialize or distribute our 
technology or self-amplifying mRNA technology, which is this next generation mRNA vaccine technology. And presently, the Arcturus COVID vaccine technology is in phase three in Japan. And we're preparing for success, of course, on that and assuming success with this presently ongoing phase three trial. We're going to be filing an NDA in Japan and commercializing our COVID vaccine in Japan with CSL's help and with a partner in Japan called Meiji. And so this partnership with CSL is important for COVID, but it's also important for the flu shot and also other respiratory infectious disease vaccines. So enormously impactful to Arcturus. It was a $4.5 billion deal in total potential value. We received a $200 million upfront payment and these sorts of large upfront payments we haven't seen for a while here in San Diego. So this is of course very meaningful to us. We have $1.3 billion in development milestones that are relatively near term. In the first quarter of our relationship, we've already announced $90 million in being invoiced in development milestones. So we're between the upfront and the near-term development milestones. And ultimately we have 40% profit sharing on the COVID franchise and double-digit royalties potentially on, on the flu franchise and other respiratory infectious disease vaccines. So if you add that up all together, I hope you can understand how impactful it is to a company of our size. It extends our runway three years, which is very meaningful as we enter a time where other biotech companies are reducing their workforces. So we just feel very fortunate at the timing of this deal and the potential impact we can have in COVID and flu with this new next generation self-amplifying mRNA technology. Yeah, certainly seems like a very exciting time at Arcturus and clearly differentiated just based on what's going on in the market. I'm curious, given that there's been 250 plus companies that have had layoffs and funding has certainly gotten much tighter over the last year and change, even given the fact in terms of where you are from a capital raise perspective, is the current environment informing how you're thinking about team building and operating models right now, or yeah. not so much because you feel like you're you're in a really good place? No. Well, the benefits of having a strong balance sheet when the field in general is in some sort of recession is great news for Arcturus, because as other biotech companies reduce their workforces, we of course have the opportunity to attract and capture talent that normally we wouldn't be able to do. They combine this exciting new pre-commercial story of next-generation mRNA technology with the availability of this talent that's come forward because of this pseudo-recession. Yes, we're definitely have shifted our recruitment strategies based on that. We've brought on some just exceptional people recently, a new CMO, a new chief development officer as well, a lot of scientific staff members from the San Diego community that have become available and on the market. So it's been very rewarding for Arcturus to have this strong balance sheet in, in a field of new talent becoming available. And an extension of that question, coupled with your own entrepreneurial journey, I imagine there's been some shift in mental model around what value creation looks like at a biotech over the 10 plus years that you've been doing this. What advice would you provide folks that are listening right now around areas, how you drive focus and perhaps optionality given the current environment and your own journey? In general, we emphasize 
hiring people that are competent at what they do and are likable. We tend to hire competent, likable people at our tourists, but in our management level, like our senior management team, not only do they need to be competent and likable, but there needs to be a certain fiscal wisdom that they possess, that they don't spend frivolously, they live within their budgets. And then also there needs to be a culture of focus that's very, very important when all these biotech companies are exciting. There's so many exciting technologies that are being developed. And the passion of that sometimes gets caught up into 15 different assets in your pipeline. And that's the worst thing you can do to a company. So you have all these assets. Instead, you should focus the company on areas that can be grown efficiently. So efficient growth, like platform opportunities. So at Arcturus, instead of being asset focused and diverse, we're platform focused and we've selected three areas to focus on. And that's vaccines and inhaled messenger RNA and intravenously dosed mRNA for the liver. So liver, lung, and vaccines. And if any one of those prove out, then we can efficiently turn the crank and successfully add programs there. But what I see very often in the biotech space and what you're tempted to do as an early entrepreneur is go, let's start 15 programs. And you get so ambitious about the science, you don't think through the downstream impact of that naive ambition, I call it. And so it's important to be good at what you do. It's important to be likable and work well with others. That's crucial. But if you want to be a leader in the biotech space, you got to live within your budgets, be wise with your money, and then really, really know how to focus on what's the most efficient growth with the technology that you're holding on to. That's great advice, Joe. Thanks for sharing that. Now, a bit of a personal question. This is your first time being in the CEO seat, but you're 10 years deep, obviously. How has your perspective on being a CEO changed? part one. And then the second part is that, you know, being a CEO is certainly a very lonely journey. And given the inherent risk in drug development, there's lots of ups and downs. And what's worked for you in terms of navigating all of those ups and downs? Wow. There's a lot there to unpack. First thoughts came to mind is as a young entrepreneur, there's a common misconception that I'm going to set up my own company so I can be my own boss. You've heard this all the time oh, I'm not reporting to anybody anymore. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to be the CEO, right? And in reality, guys, anyone that's listening to me, I have more bosses now than I've ever had before. So if you are starting up a company so that you can be your own boss, just take a moment to process what I just said. So as a CEO, you interact with a lot of different people. You have investors, that you need to account for and report to. You have board members, you have a chairman and multiple committees. And all of these people are very important to you being a successful CEO. But it wasn't what I kind of naively thought the experience was going to be. So right off the bat, you have to be able to interact with a lot of folks as a CEO, and you're not the big guy in the chair bossing people around, right? It's just not what sometimes people think it is, right? So there's that. The other aspect is the ability to build is something that's often very important. And if you're building a team, please, if there's one thing, if I could go back to whether it's my young self or if I'm talking to any young entrepreneur, it's very important that you hire people 
that are likable. And I'm using the McKinsey definition of likability. This is someone who's humble, approachable, and positive. When I mean likable, I do not mean popular. I do not mean cool. I do not mean studly or fun, okay? I mean humble. I mean approachable, and I mean positive. So a very McKinsey-ish definition of likability. If you emphasize that just as much as competency, then you're going to build a team that is self-feeding. When you have a good team, it's one plus one equals five, not three. So I would emphasize likability in bringing on and building a very effective team. The easy part is finding someone who is awesome at what they do. And often people think that's the hard part. The hard part is finding a team that really gels well together and gets along. Yeah, certainly agree. And Joe, does that tie also to you know how you've been able to handle the ups and downs in your own personal journey of founding Arcturus? I'm sure it plays a part. I'm curious what else plays into that. It's a good question. I think there's a unique aspect. It depends on which stage. The entrepreneurial CEO is different than the public company CEO. And that transition is something that I've done, at least I hope to call it successfully. The jury may still be out in five, 10 years from now, but that transition is very difficult often because entrepreneurs need to take risks to succeed. That's an entrepreneurial CEO. If you don't take a risk, you're going to fail. I guarantee it. And on the public company side of things, it's risk mitigation. If you take a risk and fail, that's a colossal failure in the public company space. So you need to de-emphasize risk and it's more operational excellence and risk mitigation. And you have the resources to make sure you have parallel paths and you do things right and your focus is right. So it's just a completely different set of issues. But as on the entrepreneurial side, if you don't take that risk, you're going to lose. If you ever find yourself saying, you know what, that legal risk, it's just it's too much exposure. You're going to get beat by someone who's going to take the risk. If you're going to be someone who's like, ah, it might just not work, then nothing's ever going to happen and you're not going to hit that milestone. It's just two completely different versions of my experience. But making that transition can be smooth if you just stay on top of things and, and yeah. understand and listen to your board members, listen to your advisors, listen to your bosses that I've talked about earlier and make sure you learn, just keep learning. That's a wonderful distinction of entrepreneurs at the early stage and what it takes to be a publicly traded CEO. Looking forward a bit now, we've talked obviously about messenger RNA. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the evolution of messenger RNA as a therapeutic and where you hope it goes in the next two to three decades. Wow. That's one of my favorite questions to answer is the future of RNA and where are we going to go next with this exciting new world that we live in? We saw how mRNA disrupted and just did a fantastic job with COVID. That's like the future of the vaccine space is going to be dramatically impacted by mRNA. Companies that are very well known, also Arcturus, we'd like to join the fray with CSL as our partner now in COVID and flu and other respiratory infectious disease vaccines. I think you can expect some disruption there to continue and and making better vaccines to help protect people from all the crazy infectious diseases out there. But outside of vaccines, you've got to look at therapeutics now. So this is where I pause and just remind people that messenger RNA makes proteins. Messenger RNA does not suppress or antagonize or block anything. That's the pharmaceutical industry's job. 
they come up with these small molecules that block pathways. They're called inhibitors or antagonists or blockers, and they suppress diseases and suppress you know, pain and lower cholesterol and reduce fat. And that's what they're doing. But what mRNA does is simply replace what's missing and what's dysfunctional. The reason we have all this disease out there is because the DNA that we got from our mom and our dad is messed up a little bit. And you can blame whoever you want, but this DNA gets converted to RNA and then gets converted to protein. And if there's something wrong with the DNA, then there's something missing there. Then we have the missing RNA and we have the missing protein. And then you get all those diseases that the multi-trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry is suppressing. So this is what mRNA is going to do. In my strong opinion here, it's not going to just disrupt, it's going to uberify like what Uber has done to yellow taxis, okay? You have all these yellow taxis called the pharmaceutical industry and the messenger RNA companies are gonna come in and simply replace what's missing. If you can replace that missing enzyme, that missing transporter, that missing protein, then all those pills go away because you're functionally cured. And so you got to wrap your heads around that. How many diseases are caused by something that's missing? It's astronomical. And mRNA is going to be able to address that problem. So why don't we have all these solutions right now? How come we haven't cured cancer and cured obesity and diabetes and, and wrinkles? It's because of delivery. So as you look to the future, if we can get these amazing mRNA molecules, simple, beautiful, natural, perfect mRNA molecules, if we can get them to the right cell and let them just do their work, then we'll solve all the problems. And right now, Arcturus is good at delivering mRNA to three cell types. There's 200 different cell types in the body. We're good at three of them. So look at that huge opportunity, that landscape of the future. So the future is safely and effectively delivering mRNA to different cell types in the body and just allow the magic to happen and cure disease. And those people don't need to take any more pills. Now, looking beyond that, you can cut me off, Rahul, if I'm rambling. I think that the pharmaceutical industry and mRNA therapeutics and vaccines are hyper-focused on the sick, on those that are in hospitals, and rightly so. We got to replace what's missing and dysfunctional in people that are sick. But after that exercise is well on its way and completed, then we've got to look at normal levels of proteins. Most people aren't living in a hospital. Most people aren't sick. What about them? How can mRNA help you and I, people that are healthy? If we have a healthy normal of protein, why not get more of it? And what happens if we do that? So I think supraphysiologics, having this ability to elevate proteins that are already normal in our body, that's an exciting new era where why not be faster, stronger, happier, healthier, younger, whatever it is. I think that you know once we get to 20, 30 years from now, I think mRNA is going to be well on its way in addressing a lot of diseases, but also looking at helping healthy people become healthier, younger, happier, faster, stronger, brighter, yeah. smarter. Joe, that's certainly a very inspiring vision for the application of mRNA. One last thing before we let you run, would like to ask you to reflect for a minute and given all that you've seen across your career What's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? Oh, wow. There's a lot I would change. I'm not one of these people that has no regrets. I've got plenty of them. So I have plenty of things that I would change. 
I think I would emphasize the importance of working with people that you enjoy to work with, people that are likable, that can be trusted, and put more emphasis on that, less on the science, and elevate more emphasis on working with people that you love to work with. I wish I learned that earlier in life. I thought it was all about science and data and money. And the earlier you capture that in your story, in your life, in your ambition, your company, the more successful I would be if I was talking to my my earlier self, just learning that lesson earlier than later. That certainly resonates with me too, Joe. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure connecting and wishing you and the team at Arcturus continued success on the important work that you all are pursuing. Yeah, thanks, Raul. Good luck to you and Clara. Wish you nothing but success as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.